Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Welcome, everybody. My name is David Lieb. I am an endocrinologist and program director of the endocrine program at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. I'm also the chair of the ACE Education Oversight Committee, and I'm here with Vin. Hey, Dave. I'm Vin Tangpreacha. I'm the program director at Emory University and the current editor-in-chief of Endocrine Practice. We are excited for our second podcast that we've done through ACE. And we have a very exciting topic today, which is nutrition and obesity management. In a little bit, we're going to talk to Carl Nadolski, a true expert and a very motivating person. So I'm excited about that conversation. Yeah, me too. I think that we all could use some help, especially these pandemic times. Yes. Ever heard of the COVID-19, Dave? Uh, yeah, I think I've gained the COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to check. Hopefully not. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, it's been amazing watching some people who really use the time that they have at home to become more active and to really focus more on their own health. And then there's some other folks who maybe have gone in the opposite direction. And with all the stress that I think everybody's been yeah. under, that certainly has not helped my weight. It's funny you bring that up. When we bought our house, there was a treadmill in the basement that I hadn't touched to, since COVID. And I used to have a gym membership, but I couldn't go to the gym. So I just use the treadmill even every day now. It's just easy to go downstairs, use the treadmill. And I think I've been able to go farther and longer. And so my exercise talent has gone up during the pandemic. That's awesome. Are you excited about the big game? Well, by the time this podcast plays, we'll, we'll have known the Super Bowl champion, right? So you want to guess who wins? You want to put our bets down now? And My general knowledge of professional sports is so limited and yours is so vast <laughs> that I would not take any chance at making a guess because I'll be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy that's probably more interested in the commercials. Okay, no worries. We're probably going to watch it still. Sure, sure. Well, there are a lot of exciting things that are going on in ACE. This is a nice opportunity to talk about them. Tomorrow is the kickoff for Endocrine University year one. So this is something that I know that you've been were heavily involved in, in developing with a number of other wonderful people at ACE. And Endocrine University has a long, great tradition of helping to train our endocrine fellows across the country. So Endocrine University Year One is three days and the program is amazing. Organized by Drs. Geetha Gopal Christian and Matthew Levine, who were the chair and vice chair for our, our fellow education committee. Day one is all diabetes. Day two is thyroid and day three is bone with some other things kind of scattered throughout. So I know our fellows uh, at EVMS are super excited. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I was super impressed with the Endocrine University year two in the fall. And, and all those fellows logged in on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, yeah. and they were so engaged. So, you know, I, I was really impressed that the virtual learning has taken off this year. Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of coming on the back of that is our new ACE self-assessment program, which is going to be available toward the end of February. 80 brand new questions, case-based 
detailed answers in all of the endocrine areas that you need to know for your boards or for general knowledge, CME, MOC. It's a really wonderful product that's been helmed by Dr. Elias Siraj, who is our editor-in-chief with his six section chairs and I think close to 30 question writers that have been trained and how to write. It's really can be awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the update. I think it's been three years since the last update and this product is going to be amazing. I'm going to buy it. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be so user-friendly. You can use it on the computer, on the mobile device. I, I got a sneak preview of it and I love how you can answer questions. And if you get some questions wrong, you can go back to this learning mode and do those questions again until you get it right. So I love <laughs> I like that. Uh, so Vin, endocrine practice looks great. I have been excited to go online. It's so pretty to look at. And I'm just talking about the superficial stuff. I, I, know, <laughs> I know that y'all have made a lot of changes. How are things going with the journals? Oh, it's been great. I mean, the first issue with our new publisher and brand was just in January. And uh, take a look at it. It's really sleek and very user-friendly. We have some of the top highlighted articles on the cover, and we have all the articles inside really tightly laid out. We've got some special issues coming up. February is going to be a very COVID-themed issue. March is going to be all thyroid in honor of Lou Braverman, a very well-regarded and respected uh, member of ACE. And then we're going to have a special diabetes-focused issue in May. So lots of great things to look forward to. Got a lot of uh, great reviews coming up. We have reviews on obesity coming up, vitamin D. The two thyroid reviews in February are going to be thyroid nodules and subclinical hyperthyroidism. I think people really enjoy reading the journal and take a look at it. If you haven't looked at it in print, it'll be available in print and online. So look at it both ways. It's great. Uh, I couldn't be more excited about your kickoff as editor-in-chief this year. It's really awesome. Ben, I'm, I'm really excited about our guest today. Dr. Carl Nadalski is a clinical endocrinologist for Spectrum Health Medical Group in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and an assistant clinical professor of medicine for Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. He holds board certification in internal medicine, diabetes, endocrinology, and metabolism, and also obesity medicine. And currently, Dr. Nadalski serves as the ACE Vice Chair for our Disease State Network Committee, one of the most important committees that's part of ACE, and previously served as chair of the ACE Obesity Disease State Network. Carl, thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So Vin and I are still getting into the podcast game. I know that you've got a lot of experience. Maybe you can share some of that experience with us as we go forward. I wanted to start by asking about your wrestling. I yeah. know that you, you wrestled at, uh, at Michigan State. Yep, absolutely. How did you get involved in wrestling? Well, my, my dad was the high school coach. He wrestled in college. You know, he wrestled in high school and college. And uh, he was our local high school's wrestling coach. And I know he was trying to get the youth program started way back in the early 80s. And I remember starting to go to some of the practices when I was probably like in preschool. And then I know I, I vaguely remember, he very much remembers asking me if I wanted to go to any of the Saturday morning tournaments. And the first before I was in kindergarten, I said, no, that's Saturday morning cartoons. I can't miss those. 
So took a year off just to kind of learn in the ropes, I guess. And then the next year got started in kindergarten. That was like USA wrestling, like freestyle Greco, like Olympic style. Yeah. And then had a pretty good high school career, went on to Michigan State, had a pretty good career. I could tell you the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs <laughs> didn't quite finish where I think I should have. And uh, that doesn't keep me awake at night at all or anything like that. But um, mm-hmm. that's very sarcastic. It actually does. But. <laughs> Dave reminded me, you're among wrestlers on this podcast. Well, one one wrestler and one wrestler wannabe. I wrestled in high school. I had a very kind coach in Richmond, Virginia, who allowed me to stay on the team. <laughs> so I think I set a record for the fastest pin in uh, our district during a district tournament, meaning I was pinned yeah, faster was than anybody had ever been pinned. <laughs> I was not particularly good, but as a kid, I was always heavy. Weight was something that was sort of constantly part of my life, especially having diabetes. And wrestling, there were a lot of really positive influences from my brief wrestling career with respect to nutrition and fitness. And I'd be interested in how your experiences as a wrestler may have affected your interest in nutrition later on. Absolutely. Yeah, that is exactly right on. Uh, And we haven't even ever talked about that. And you kind of knew that. Yeah. So especially going through at Michigan State, I actually did kind of like exercise physiology, kinesiology as my undergrad degree. And you would think a lot of stereotypically, a lot of jocks, I guess, go on to medical school and do ortho and whatnot. You guys know me enough to know I'm definitely more of a nerd. And so really kind of the sports nutrition, the physiology is really what I got into and my younger brother who followed behind me at Michigan State. And so we were really into that stuff. And like you said, with cutting weight, but still being able to perform and do it healthy. And I was definitely into trying to be as strong and, and, and everything like that at my weight. Nutrition was really important. And I'll tell you just a quick story about that is my aunt, my mom's sister, she retired. She's a cardiologist. And we were talking to her about going to med school and stuff. And we were talking about insulin and diet and everything like that for body composition. And she said, well, geez, that sounds like you want to be an endocrinologist. And I thought, well, Okay. That sounds reasonable. And then in medical school, you know, I paid attention to it and got into the real, what I would call more of the, some of the other endocrine stuff, all the negative feedback loops, and not everyone gets that. And so it just luckily was one of those things that really made sense to me. And so then I've been able to sort of continue to progress in the diet and nutrition and take my experience to help people with weight and the metabolic diseases that come from that. And so that's a passion of mine and hopefully uh, can pass it along. That's so fascinating. And I too did wrestle like Dave. I did get third place in one tournament. I'm happy about that. Mostly by stalling on the mat, but. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, well, do what you got to do. I got my points. I just didn't want to get pinned. (laughs) But, you know, in the past, wrestling used to get a really bad rap for nutrition. We were kids Mm -hmm. on our team cutting weight unhealthily. And I come from a wrestling family too. My brothers wrestled, but my nephew now wrestles and looks like he's going to be state champion in Kansas. I thought it was really fascinating that they have all these new regulations and rules, like to make sure you're not losing too much weight and check your BUN and all this. I I don't don't know if if you keep up with that stuff. I thought that was so fascinating. And then good nutrition now is emphasized. Yeah. And it's too bad that it maybe wasn't as much, but also nutrition science, which is very difficult as people who are listening to this maybe know a little bit, but you know, we've learned a lot over the years and there definitely is more of an emphasis, I think. And I do help out the, you know, one of my brother's old teammates is our coach now at the local high school. And I always am telling the guys, go up a weight, go up a weight. I'll help you eat better, build muscle. You can stay lean, 
you can drop a little water weight, but let's not go down weight. You guys will feel better. You'll perform better. Go up. I, I can only imagine how my life would have been different if I had had an endocrinologist as part <laughs> of our team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe that's our next niche. Great. Well, one of the things that Vin and I wanted to ask you about was, was your experience with helping individuals as they're working towards uh, better fitness and specifically weight loss. What are some of the personal factors that practitioners and providers should be thinking about when thinking about weight loss and diet for patients? Yeah, so many factors here. And I think both clinicians, doctors, dietitians, our APPs, and patients themselves, everyone needs to acknowledge and embrace the fact that we're all so different and we have so many different characteristics that are going to influence our body physique, our body composition, and our health that comes from it. And so, you know, understanding that everyone's got a different genetic background, people have different lifestyle backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, maybe people have been on different medications, different medical problems, different things that happen through life. That's why we do a weight history. We should do a weight history because it'll help you realize what happened at some point. Was it, have they struggled with weight their whole lives? Did their parents struggle with weight? Do they look back and say, well, you know, we were eating restaurant food our whole lives. We were drinking regular soda our whole lives and we just all struggled with weight. Or did we really all work at it? And yet my whole family really struggled with weight. And yet we really tried and had help. And yet we still struggled. Did we gain weight after pregnancy, divorces, stressful situations, again, diseases that come up, medications that were maybe started, injuries. You know, we're talking about sports. There are plenty of people that you guys probably see too, who were really fit their whole lives and they had enough of that. There's a term called metabolic flexibility that mm -hmm. between genetics and fitness can help people stay pretty lean. And then they get injured and they're still taking in way too much energy intake. And we'll talk about energy balance and the complexities of that. And then suddenly they're injured and that metabolic flexibility goes away. They're not working out and doing their thing and, and they gain weight. And then suddenly the the physiology starts to work against them. The biology works against them. And everyone has something different. I always say, you have all these different factors and then something else throws a monkey wrench. You have a different monkey wrench that got thrown into that complex energy balance we talk about. And then I also think it's really important that patients understand, doctors understand, dietitians understand that we have to talk about the complexities of obesity, of that energy balance, and then not just the weight, we have to talk about it's what's on the inside that counts. And that gets into the ACE position on calling it an adiposity-based disease. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, these are adiposity-based diseases. So it's not the weight per se, it's the amount of adipose tissue, the dysfunction of the adipose tissue, where we're storing it, our visceral adiposity that then drives those diseases. And so that's why we really have to focus on this, not only the energy balance, the weight loss, which is easier said than done because of all that biology working against us, but then also other dietary factors that are to some degree independent of the weight loss that we can talk about. And everyone has different backgrounds on that, and they have to understand that and so that we can personalize therapy. So Carl, help us with this. I mean, Dave and I see this all the time in our clinics. We have people who are formerly very fit come to the office, they have high blood pressure, diabetes, fatty liver disease, 
and we're treating all these different things, but the obvious factor is the weight gain. So how do you approach that with a patient without being too judgmental and helping them with the conversation with losing weight? So for us specifically, if endocrinologists or specialists are listening to this, we're probably being, the patients are probably referred to us for these things. And trying to broach the complications of the obesity is sometimes a little bit easier than, say, maybe a primary care doctor who has a patient come in, they have obvious excess adiposity, they have obesity, but if you look at our old guidelines that we need to update, maybe they're stage zero. They really don't have any complications of it, but somehow that topic has to be broached because of the risk of those complications. So that's actually maybe a little bit harder, and that gets into the five A's, the assessment, the asking, and that sort of thing. But for us, they're coming in for type 2 diabetes. Like you just said, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver. And so I like to describe it, and they know they have a weight problem. They don't necessarily want to bring it up. And a lot of people think it's their fault, and it's not necessarily their fault. They think it's willpower. They say it to me all the time. Well, I just need better willpower. And say, well, hold on. No, this is a complex disease. It's not just willpower it's easier said than done, right? And I kind of try to lighten it up with them. I say, these things we're talking about, these are driven by the fat tissue, you know? And so we're going to talk about diet and exercise and energy balance. And I just tell them, I say, this is complex. I'm going to try to simplify it for you, but I'm going to give you a little of the complexity. And one of my mentors in fellowship at Walter Reed, he's actually the dean at Uniform Services University, he just happens to be the, an endocrinologist, Lou Pangaro. He said, you embrace the complexity, but act with simplicity. And I tell that to all my patients. I love it. And obesity is a complex disease. Energy balance is complex. And I say, we have areas in our brain and, you know, the hypothalamus that are controlling our appetite and metabolism. We have hormones coming from our fat cells and our intestine hormones that are communicating with that. And it starts to work against us. The, the biology drives either weight regain if we lose it, or it tries to keep us at a set point that is unhealthy. The weight that we have is unhealthy for us for all these reasons but it's easier said than done. And then you throw in the whole reward, the mesolimbic dopamine, you know, once we pop, you can't stop. And I just try to open it up to them and they go, yeah, oh, that is hard. I know. And I say, okay, now we're going to talk about it. We're going to personalize it. And then we may get into pharmacotherapy to help surgeries, et cetera, to, because it's, it's not easy. And we live in an obesogenic environment. I always tell them, I love the word hyper palatable because it's nobody's going around getting addicted to, to sugar, table sugar, but it's the sugar and the fat and the forms that they're in and they smell and taste so good that our brain can't deal with it. And we drive towards it, that food seeking behavior and they get it. It's, it's um, a lot of it, I think starts with making that relationship with the patient so that mm -hmm. the guilt can kind of just yeah. come off the table. I certainly find that in conversations I have with my patients with diabetes a lot of that kind of starts off with that guilt again, yep. where people feel like if they just had more willpower. And you just got to tell them. I'll tell you what, and this just happened the other day, and it kind of broke my heart. And I know that this can happen sometimes, but my patient came in, was referred to a different endocrinologist somewhere else, didn't work out for whatever reason, and then came to see me for, I think, obesity and type 2 diabetes. And she said that her primary care doctor, who's somewhere in my town, said, well, I don't want to send you to the endocrinologist that's in town because he's really fit and everything like that. And he's just going to think you're not working out and eating right. And I thought, oh my God, of all people, I'm the one that just absolutely preaches that that is not the case, that it's so much more complex. And I really think she left feeling great and better about herself and that we're going to help her. Awesome. 
One of the things that's interesting to me, just even since I finished my fellowship in 2009, you know, so much of endocrine disease was treated with a broad stroke in the past, but is now much more individualized. Certainly, I've seen that in the management of diabetes over time and take care of a lot of folks with thyroid cancer, kind of a similar approach, individualizing Uh things. What about in obesity? How has the management of obesity changed over the last 15 to 20 years to be more individualized? Yeah, absolutely. So it goes back to the old, the calories in, calories out, right? So people always say that. Well, That's to some degree true, but it's way more complex than that, right? And so then it kind of went from that and the eat less, move more mantra. Well, that doesn't help. That's like telling a patient to go home and feel better when they have depression, right? Well, oh, you're fine. Just go eat less, move more. No big deal, right? Go feel better. You're not depressed. That's fine. So I think that's part of teaching them the complexities and, and embracing that with them. And so then, of course, you know, then you get into these extreme dietary, I like to call them dietary evangelicals. You know, they, they get stuck on these very extreme diets that have data. All the diets we could talk about today have data for benefit. And ultimately they do kind of force each patient to reduce the energy intake, create an energy deficit and lose weight. So we have the low carb, high fat dietary sector. We have the vegetarians and to the extreme kind of the vegans. We have the really low fat that kind of mixes in with them. Paleo can mix in a little bit with the lower carb people. But what I like to talk about is imagine all these different dietary approaches that you hear about and put them into a Venn diagram. And in fact, we published it in the ACEs Empower last year. And they often share a lot of similarities And so then you can do a nice diet log with people. And in fact, last year, the American Heart Association actually published a nice paper on rapid diet assessment screening tools for cardiovascular disease, but it's all together, right? It's all obesity, cardiometabolic disease. It all goes together. And so people can look at that. It's 2020, I think, and see what might work for you in clinic. I have dietitians who can follow up with me and do even more in depth, but I like to do kind of a daily recall and say, okay, what do you eat in a usual day and where do you struggle? And I definitely ask, do they drink any sugary sweetened beverages? Do they go out to eat very often? Because no matter what you eat at a restaurant, they find a way to make it just overwhelming to our energy balance system. You know, it can be a salmon and asparagus and somehow it's 2,200 calories just because it's butter and sugar. And so you can take all these different dietary approaches that have data, cutting carbs, cutting fat, a Mediterranean approach is sort of what I sort of prefer, but it can be a low carb, low fat Mediterranean approach, throw in some intermittent fasting options, and then talk about, well, also we have meal replacements. We can just replace some of your meals with protein shakes, which people don't realize that sounds kind of silly, but that has some of the best data for intensive weight loss and diabetes remission. And so, you know, you can take all these things and help them in all these little individual ways. And then the other thing that's very important is the processed versus the unprocessed food issues, right? And so we have good data recently, not only observational data that suggests, well, more processed foods lead to more weight gain and diabetes, That may sound obvious, but we have, you know, really good data to show that. And then Kevin Hall out of the NIH, who does a lot of the inpatient metabolic ward trials, he did one where they matched all the macronutrients ad libitum for two weeks in a crossover trial, unprocessed, you know, whole foods. This is the whole food idea, vegetables, fruit, legumes as the source of carbs, uh, good lean quality 
sources of protein and probably Mediterranean fats, nuts and seeds, the things that have cardiovascular benefits, they could eat as much as they want or the more processed stuff, refined carbohydrates, more baked goods, buttery, oily stuff, whatever. And the patients absolutely automatically ate 500 calories less with the unprocessed whole food plan and the little bit of weight loss that they monitored very precisely perfectly matched that 500 calorie difference. So you do the dietary recall, you have maybe the dietitians do even more in-depth evaluation and you see where can you make changes? Can we make changes for more whole food unprocessed changes? Can we cut some carbs somewhere? Can we cut some empty calorie fat somewhere? Can we make some exchanges for not just the weight loss, but the health? Are they eating fatty foods that we could cut out, but actually change for nuts and seeds? I'm a shill for Mr. Peanut and peanuts are not nuts. I understand that. And everyone's going to give me a hard time after this. They're legumes, but Mr. Peanut sells a lot of tree nuts. Those are all peanuts, by the way, have a lot of good data behind them. They have good cardiometabolic benefits, even without the weight loss, kind of like exercise is good for you, even if you don't lose weight. Right. And so all these different little things we can do and say, well, you know what, this is a struggle for you. You're always hungry at lunch. Why don't we set you up with a cooler full of premier protein shakes to replace lunch? We're going to do a meal replacement plan there. Maybe they don't really like breakfast, but everyone said, well, you got to eat breakfast. Well, hold on. Maybe we can do a time restricted feeding plan. Maybe you're only going to eat between 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. And then we're going to still work on your unprocessed food dietary plan, whole foods. I love that you brought up Mr. Peanut. Mr. Peanut was born about 30 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now in Suffolk, Virginia. That's where the Obesi farm started, which is what led to planters. Um, <laughs> nice. I really love what you're saying about the individualized. It, it sounds like there isn't a one size fits all. It really needs a conversation with mm -hmm. each person to see what yeah. would fit with their life. Yeah. And to add to that, it's their preferences right? Mm -hmm. And I tell people, it's like, if you need a treat once in a while, we got to find a way for you to enjoy a treat. You got to be able to enjoy the food. Food is a big deal socially. Yeah. And you know, if you look back at some of the trials of dietary regimens, like the A to Z and all these old trials where they did low carb versus low fat versus Mediterranean. Well, if you look back at an old 2005 JAMA article looking at that, they all had about the same weight loss, but when they somehow measured adherence, it all matched the adherence. It was all about <laughs> adherence. True. And so you don't have to be low carb, high fat. You don't have to be low fat, high carb. You can be a little of both. We can make a Mediterranean spin to it. We can do some intermittent fasting, use some meal replacements, personalize the therapy. Carl, you touched on this a little bit, the exercise. And that is one area that docs have a hard time prescribing. I mean, yeah. What is your sort of go-to beginner level exercise and maybe more advanced exercise or, or is that personalized too? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Everything's personalized. But so this is, again, we got to figure out what their baseline is, what experience they have. So you guys, you guys played sports in high school, you wrestled, you may claim to not have been very good, but you did it. You understand <laughs> it. I know they got you into the weight room, right? I got a medal. <laughs> and then, and then I see what you ask. So what do you do now? Well, sometimes people aren't doing anything. You do have to consider the cardiovascular risk, right? And so that gets into a different discussion on, do you have to do any screening for these people at high cardiovascular risk? I don't think anybody's going to go from zero with a really high cardiovascular risk to suddenly doing highly intensive CrossFit mm -hmm. training, right? And that's not what we're going to recommend. I often say, okay, we got to do some sort of aerobic training. And if you're able to walk, we're going to start with five minutes of walking a day 
And by the way, if you look at the ADA recommendations for exercise, they put a huge emphasis on breaking up sedentary time, going for a walk before and after meals, because it's very evidence-based. I mean, it's, they're not just making this up. I've been looking at these data for all these years. I mean, every time they do a study on, well, go for a five-minute walk after a meal. It makes a big deal metabolically, glycemically. And so see where they are. And then the bigger difficult part, I think, is getting them to progress in the intensity, the time, the volume, because the more, the better with exercise. And I do explain to them that it's not about the weight loss. Everyone's different. Some people, they start exercising a lot. And the compensatory mechanisms that we talked about in the brain that drive appetite, some people end up eating more than what they're burning. And so they gain weight. Some people, it goes the opposite and they lose weight. So don't worry about the weight. It's literally, again, what's on the inside that counts, the, the health benefits of it. Getting them to do upper body and leg resistance training, I think is a little bit more difficult if they haven't done it. If they're like you guys and you've, and it doesn't have to be complicated. It's the basics, pushing, pulling exercises, teaching them how to maybe do some stuff at home. And I say, this might sound silly, but we can just add in 10 pushups every one minute while you're watching your favorite TV show. And they're like, oh, that's silly. I'm like, I know it's silly. And then I say, but think about all your muscle cells, this little sugar and fat burning factories. And we got to get them churning and burning. We got to burn up the fat that's in there causing dysfunction. And then they'll go out and they'll get the sugar and bring it in even without any insulin, especially if they have diabetes. They love to hear that because we want to get them off their insulin. You know, yeah, I think it's leg day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing with aerobic, a lot of every day's leg day. So I often focus on the, their upper body resistance training to get all their muscles involved. Right. So, oh, rubber bands too, band exercises. I say you can sit down and you can do rowing and then you can do some pushups and then you can do, you know, circuit training. I, I just kind of give them examples and then try to give them a little bit of a, an initial step and then see them in follow up and then go from there. I remember I was at an ACE meeting one year and I was doing the elliptical and my fellow saw me walking by and he said, the, the elliptical is for, for oh, no. I shouldn't say. He made fun of me. Yeah, I, I, I can I, see that. I, I, I changed the treadmill. Exercise. Yeah. But you know what? Hey, so this is another thing. You know, we talked about the injuries. So you got to consider their physical limitations. Some people cannot do anything on their feet and we got to get them into the pool. Or that's even a better reason to get them into a gym or do some home exercise stuff where they sit and they do arm exercises, pushing and pulling circuits, and really to kind of try to write down even just a real simple little plan for them to do and then progress with that. Well, I think we'd be missing out if we didn't ask you about COVID in our last few minutes together. I know everybody's talking about COVID, but you know, certainly obesity has become front and center during this pandemic, especially in the U.S., and I'd be interested in, in any comments you have about things that we can recommend to our patients, simple things to try to keep active and healthy during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think patients, they range from being completely isolated in their homes, not going anywhere, being very safe. Maybe their jobs are now all virtual or maybe whatever, or they didn't even have a job. Maybe they're retired, and, but they're just not going anywhere compared to those who are still going into work. Some people are willing to go to the gym if they're open and some people are not. And so I do talk to a lot of those patients about coming up with these home exercises. If they have stairs and if they're able to walk up and down stairs, I say, hey, first of all, let's be as active as possible. Break up the sedentary time, like I said, with the ADA recommendations based upon those data and you know, set an alarm every 30 minutes or every hour, get up and go for a one minute walk around your house. If we can find time to do a real exercise regimen, 
and you don't have a bike, you're not going to go for a walk in the middle of the winter. We're having a blizzard right here in, in Michigan. If you have stairs, five minutes, give me five minutes where you put on your headphones, listen to some music and just go up and down the best you can take breaks if you need it, but do that. And then we can add a minute the next day, add a minute the next day or the next week. And then I get into those ideas where we're like, so let's, let's come up with a little push-up plan. Let's buy you some exercise bands and you put it around a table leg and you sit and you do rowing exercises for all your back muscles. And I, I kind of go back to the spiel of think about them as little metabolic factories. We got to get them involved in your treatment. Exercise is medicine. I just plead with them. Exercise is medicine. It's better than any prescription I can give you. I promise if we do it right. And go from there. And some people, they want to buy exercise machines and stuff and tell you an Airdyne bike, you guys know what that is, where you do the arms too. Yeah. Oh, no. You know, those are, I mean, if I could get everyone to invest in an Airdyne bike, it would make my job a lot easier. (laughs) They're great. They are great exercises. Well, Carl, this has been fantastic. Let me know when you're ready to move to sunny Virginia. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was, that's, I was there for fellowship while well, I was in you know, D.C. area, Bethesda, but I lived in northern Virginia. I, was I love my endocrinologists that I, I see here Fort locally, Belmar. so it, it, could, it could be sort of a team-up sort of thing, but uh, <laughs> you're very, very motivating, and uh, we just want to thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks a yeah. lot, Carl. Sorry to go off on tangents, but yeah, I like it. Well, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.